Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 65 and the season three premiere of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. I'm really excited to have a special guest today to kick off our season three. I have Joan Iflin with me. And just to give you a little background about Joan, Dr. Iflin has been creating breakthroughs in recovery from food addiction from 1999 with the publication of her first popular book to 2018 with the publication of her textbook, Processed Food Addiction, Foundations, Assessment, and Recovery. The textbook is the first academic publication describing how to diagnose and treat processed food addiction as well as establishing the scientific basis for the disease. Dr. Iflin is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition and was selected by the Oprah Winfrey Network as the food addiction specialist on the program Book of John Gray. Her current project is another breakthrough in recovery, trainings for health professionals who want to treat processed food addiction. And for food addicts, Joan created the Online Addiction Reset Community, or ARC, which she founded in 2018. She also has created numerous innovative online resources for food addicts, including Facebook groups such as Food Addiction Education and Food Addiction Education The Food. She also has a website, www.foodaddictionresources.com, that provides free evidence-based handouts. She founded the first online trainings in food addiction to make recovery easier in smaller online groups. And this is called Food Addiction Reset, which you can find at www.foodaddictionreset.com. So you can see why I've been so eager to have Dr. Iflin talk with us. So excited to have you. Welcome, Joan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate what you do because I can do all these things, but it takes uh, a person like you to get it out to the people who need it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'd love to start because I think your background is really interesting. So if you could start just with telling us a little bit about your, your history. Well, thank you uh, for asking. I uh, grew up in a very uh, chaotic household. I now know that both my parents were having really uh, violent reactions to processed foods, alcohol, nicotine, and um, my brother and sister and I were also having violent reactions to processed foods. My mother was not a big cook, so we ate a lot of, even in the 1950s when I was growing up, uh, we had convenience foods. My father was a scientist for a processed, well, for a consumer goods company, and uh, we were getting samples to make at home of sweets and there was always a dessert made in our household every day and on and on. 
we started the day with sugary breakfast cereals. And the way it manifested, uh, it was really two devastating ways. One in um, angry behavior. Now, people don't realize that processed foods create irritability, anger, uh, critical nature, rage, um, abuse, that they do so disrupt brain function and glucose function that people erupt without wanting to. And uh, I grew up in that household. It was traumatic. And I developed workaholism as a result um, to try to find a way to fix the behavior in my family. And that uh, it led me to a lot of achievement. My undergraduate degree is in economics and political science. And I worked for a state legislature on their finance committee for two years before I decided I'd rather switch over into business. I did go to Stanford Business School in 1978 with a degree in finance and went to work for a corporation, a Fortune 200 corporation. So this is starting to sound like a pretty weird background until we get to the part of the story about the role of the tobacco industry. And then if you know corporate behavior and you know government behavior, you can believe, you can start to, to lend some credibility to the idea that this epidemic of obesity is a corporate-inspired, corporate-led, corporate-stimulated uh, epidemic like tobacco. So from there, I had two little girls in uh, two years. And I quit the corporate job to stay at home. And pretty soon I was yo-yo dieting and I was too sick to go back to work. Even when they started school and I could have done something, I was too sick. I had allergies, really bad allergies. That's the other way that this manifested in our home of origin is uh, we were always sick. Headaches and swellings and itchy eyes and asthma and just the food made us sick and we didn't know why. So it was tough. When my own two children were born, I really wanted to stop the raging. And the only thing that was available in the early 1980s was therapy. And so I went to therapy and it didn't help at all. I didn't go for an eating problem. I went for the raging problem and it didn't help at all. I kept erupting. So I went to a women's group and I did 14 long weekends of training with them and it didn't help. I went to a 12 step group for rotten personalities, Codependence Anonymous. And that was, uh, you know, I worked that program hard. I got a sponsor, I wrote the steps, I did all that did not stop the raging. But there was a person in that group who was also in a food addiction group. She could hear the sugar driving my behavior. She could hear the sugar uh, just driving that eruption of rage. And she 
just very respectfully a couple of times during that first year, suggested that I might want to think about the 12-step group for food addiction. <laughs> I'm like, I was kind of in my thin phase. And I said, well, you know, why would I need that? I don't have a weight problem. But by the end of the year, I'd regained the weight and I got the book, turned directly to the food plan, you know, didn't read anything in between. And on January 1st, 1996, I eliminated sugars and flowers from my diet. Three weeks later, I'm standing in my kitchen. I'm thinking, wow, I haven't had to yell at anybody in three weeks. And nobody's really needed a, some serious correcting in three weeks. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. That was not about them. It was about the food. It was like a Thursday. We didn't have the internet. I had heard about other things. I, I had to wait till Saturday to go to my support group. And I asked to people become less irritable and 20 heads in the room. Yep. So by then I had lost the cravings, which I didn't know was possible. I'd lost the brain fog, which I didn't realize had crept in. I'd lost the fatigue, which I knew was a problem, but I thought it was just having kids and being my age. Uh, the allergies went way, way down. The bloating went down. I had a constant sinus infection that cleared up. So all of these incredible things were happening. The depression was lifting, which I didn't even know I had. But in that third week, when I realized the raging had stopped, I thought, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. And fortunately, I had a small support group. Uh, I could go once a week. I went religiously once a week. I had to, you know, get dressed and get my car and drive over and park my car and go up in the elevator and get in the room and sit there and then go to lunch afterwards. So it would take a half a day, uh, one day a week. And then when I went back to get my doctorate, so I, tr I started trying things. I said, oh, everybody should have this miracle. Uh, my kids were in a little girl's school and I gave every parent this handout of the food seed. It's really obnoxious. You should wait until people ask. Um, and nobody could do it. And I thought, oh, well, they just don't know how. So I wrote a popular book about our first three years in my family. I, I sat down with my family. My therapist helped me. And I gave them four rules, which is you can't eat it in front of me. You can't bring it in the house. I'm not going to pay for it. You've got your own money. And I'm not going to take you to get it. You can get it at school or work. Uh, and they they were so relieved that this raging person had left and this much nicer person had come in that they were immediately and enthusiastically cooperative. And we, we did. We got the processed foods out of the house. Now, at that time, there were a lot of processed foods on the okay list. So uh, dairy was still on the list. Gluten was still on the list. There wasn't much said about excessive salt. Artificial sweeteners were still on the list of okay foods. So what I think happened in those years is I got off the most volatile substances, which are the sugars and flours, the refined carbohydrates. And I switched over to some more uh, 
kind of steady addictive substances because the fats and the dairy are slow acting. They're just as destructive, but the, you don't get the highs and the crashes. They're, uh, they're fat-based, so you just, they're absorbed more slowly and they wear off more slowly. They still create depression and brain fog and weight gain and all those things, but they're not as volatile. So I, uh, I wrote the popular book, That Didn't Help. I got on TV, I, there's this wonderful PBS producer, Patricia Gross in Houston, who did quite a bit of work with me, didn't help. I wanted a movement. I wanted everybody to know that processed foods are incredibly destructive. So um, I was going to get on national TV and the producer said, you know what, you don't have a degree in your field. So I went back to school. I, the school for new fields is in the city where I grew up, Cincinnati. So I went to Union Institute and University. You have to collect your own committee, uh, which I did from other schools. And I got incredible people who were interested in the topic. Uh, we worked our tails off for three years. I finished the degree. We published the first description of refined food addiction in the academic press. I did my doctoral dissertation validating the diagnostic criteria for alcoholism as that syndrome existing in overeaters. Uh, so we knew that was the first really strong evidence that overeating is a kind of an addiction. It meets the criteria, the behaviors meet the criteria for alcoholism. And uh, from there, uh, I got my doctoral divorce and with my settlement, I had a food company, which was not the answer because food is only about 20%, maybe it's only 5% of what it means to get off these substances. But I have one really incredible experience there. We were selling these meal services to these high-end lawyers at a very high-end law firm downtown Houston, and they, they had an experience recovery experience. They um, lost the cravings, cleared up the brain fog, and uh, had more stable energy. That is what taught me that everybody has this. When you get people of that high functioning, you know, really the highest functioning people on the planet, uh, and they have it, you know everybody has it. And it's consistent uh, for, uh, for the, the article on, the article naming the disease in the academic press. I went into the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture Statistics, and I got the quantities of processed foods, sugars, mostly high fructose corn syrup, gluten-containing flours, high-fat dairy, and french fries that were disappearing into the U.S. economy. It's a pound per person per day. That includes children. Children don't eat as much. So for the adults, it's much more than a pound per person per day. And then you think half the people are eating more than that. When you see that quantity of addictive substances 
being consumed by a culture, uh, you know everybody's got it. And that was the big thing out of that. So from there, um, I got the contract to write the textbook. My dad died. I lost my own program. I got it back. I moved to Cincinnati to take care of my stepmom until she uh, passed three years later. In those three years, I wrote the textbook. And I saw finally what I had been missing. This is not just an addiction. It's not just cravings. It's a really severe addiction. It's a really severe addiction. So um, now we know why nothing has worked. When I put down the textbook, I immediately went to the internet. I, I submitted the textbook manuscript in June of 2017. I immediately went to the internet to look up uh, platforms where I could teach and build communities. And I found Kajabi. So we now have a really elaborate set of websites and uh, videos and programs uh, based on the clear, it's a clear need you need to reprogram all the neurons that the tobacco industry, when they came over to processed foods, they immediately ramped up the amount of Saturday morning cartoon advertisements for sugary, fatty, salty foods from about 150 to about 550 in a seven year period, just for Saturday morning. So that is how all these children became addicted. And, and yeah. I just want to stop you there for a second because um, I'm hoping that you'll just elaborate a little bit on that history of the tobacco industry in case people aren't aware of it. That's um, just amazing and it's so yeah. clear. Yeah, so kind of tell us a little bit about that too. How, because most people wouldn't think what does the tobacco industry have to do with, you know, the food industry. So give us a little bit of that history as well for people that might not be aware. Thank you. Um, it's really key to understand what happened. Without this bit of the history, it's not credible. It's not credible that everybody around us is addicted. But once you see this is what tobacco did in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and then you see that model, that business model, and you see how they adapted it to processed foods, then you might be able to get to, oh, 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 you mean somebody did this to me? So this is a good story. It's a very good story. And it's unfolding. So last year, University of California, San Francisco published a paper on uh, the behaviors of R.J. Reynolds in 1963. R.J. Reynolds, a tobacco company, bought Hawaiian Punch in 1963. And uh, there, the, so UCSF is where the documents are deposited that the tobacco companies were required to turn over as part of their court settlements. So UCFS researchers are going through these papers and last year they published on this absolutely horrific finding 
which is it's a discussion, it's documentation on this purchase of Hawaiian Punch by uh, R.J. Reynolds. And what they wanted to do was transfer their, their cigarette model for adults to children and sugar. And it's just, it's very hard to read. It's very hard to read. But the, if you look at like a juice box, it's the same shape as a cigarette pack, mm -hmm. same coloring. Mm -hmm. and they use a technique. So this is where last year I picked up this technique called surround marketing. So what they do is they hide the addictive substances in their products until you get addicted. Like I remember in 19, probably the late 1950s, uh, my parents gave us a ride on an airplane from Cincinnati to Dayton. They just thought it'd be fun for us. I remember they gave us a lunch tray and there was a pack of three cigarettes on the lunch tray. Free cigarettes. Wow. Why three? Because they had done their research. It only takes three cigarettes to addict the reward neurons. So you have those three cigarettes on the plane, you can smoke on the plane, and you come off and then hours later, you think, wow, I really enjoyed those cigarettes. I think I'll get some more. You're hitting withdrawal from those three cigarettes. You're getting a craving and you go and buy cigarettes. Now you're addicted. So then the step two is everywhere you go, you can buy cigarettes. You can buy them for not very much. Uh, there are advertisements, other people are smoking, and you're now stimulating those addicted neurons to react and smoke. That is the model that they brought over to children and sugar. So they hide the sugar in these deceptive products uh, like they would extract sugar from apples. Oh, this is fruit juice. No, it's not. It's water with sugar in it extracted from apples. Very different product. And you then do things like, well, Hawaiian punch wasn't even in a juice box. It was, you know, sugar and flavoring that you mixed with water or you bought in a can. And um, then they, just like they had the Marlboro warehouse, you could get a Marlboro lighter, you could get a Marlboro jacket, you could get Marlboro boots. You, there was a warehouse of logoed merchandise that you could win or, or buy cheaply. They took that same concept and they put it over with Hawaiian Punch. So you could save up your, they had their, their like the Marlboro man became the uh, character of Punchy. Mm -hmm and lots and lots of advertising, and you could get punchy logoed toys. Now the toys are in the child's room. They're playing with them. So those, to those toys are now stimulating the sugar addiction in the child. Uh, you had Kool-Aid Man. The other, the other tobacco companies got into the act very quickly. You had Kool-Aid Man, you had Capri, uh, the Capri pouches. Mm -hmm. Capri oh. So you, you see that. And then in 1982, incredibly important things happened. One, a very corrupt 
food pyramid is issued. The effort was headed by Mark Hegstead, who was a nutritionist from Harvard, who had collaborated with the sugar industry on things like uh, fat causes heart disease. We know sugar causes heart disease, uh, but they were able to collaborate with the sugar industry and get the focus to move over to fat instead of sugar, which killed millions of people from heart disease. So the food pyramid came out in 1980, and the other thing that happened simultaneously was food pyramid, the bottom row, what you should eat most of was refined carbohydrates. So just horrible. So, and that happened, and then high fructose corn syrup became available on the market. And that broke a, a barrier to one part of the addiction business model, which is it has to be cheap. So sugar was controlled by a sugar cartel in Florida who just owns the Senate. I don't know how they did it. And then this cheap sweetener came on the market that you could, that was produced by just, you know, millions of acres of corn all over the United States. And that then opened the door to making the product very cheap. And you see tobacco in 1985 buying craft between 1985 and 1987, tobacco bought Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods. And they hired Howie Moskowitz to ramp up, just like they extracted and concentrated nicotine and put it back into cigarettes to make them more addictive. Uh, they hired Howie Moskowitz to figure out what is the maximum amount of sugar fat salt that you could get into food and still have customer acceptance. And he went around to hundreds of products. It's a very data intense, people intense process. And he figured out the maximum amount of addictive substances you could get into processed foods. even things like spaghetti sauce. It didn't have sugar before Howie Moskowitz, but it was had a lot of sugar after Howie Moskowitz. So this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. You see the skyrocketing of commercials. You see programming of reward neurons in young children. Within 10 years, the obesity rate among children goes up by 50 percent from 10 percent of children to 15 percent of children in 10 years that's just and that's uh, exactly when I grew up you know I was born in 79 and it's just interesting you know if that was happening you know in the 80s is right when I was a kid and yeah all those processed foods were coming out I mean then as I got older my first diet was fat free, you know, cause you were told fat was bad. So yeah, I, I totally experienced all of that and just didn't know the piece that it was actually the tobacco companies that bought out these huge food manufacturers and then applied, you know, the same principles, like their business model of how to get people addicted to cigarettes on how now to get people addicted to food since then, you know, cigarettes were coming out as getting some, finally, the negative press of, you know, causing cancer and being harmful. Yeah. 
So yeah. they shifted it to, to food and tar yeah. starting targeting really young, you know, children. I totally remember watching those commercials, like watching cartoons Saturday mornings and yeah. It's very, it's very hard to think that there are people like that on the planet who would addict children. When I uh, finished my doctorate, I picked up an incredible book called uh, Cigarette Century by Alan Brandt. He's in the Department of History and Science at Harvard. And he really detailed, he just lined out what happened, how, what were the cigarette companies' techniques, and you know, who went after them, what were the court proceedings, how did it finally come under control? And uh, the parallel is just striking. You get also like Nina Teitold's book, uh, Big Fat Lie, uh, David Kessler's book, um, Band of Overeating. The big one is Michael Moss's book, Sugar, Fat, Salt. And then um, there are a couple of good tobacco books, uh, cigarette papers, I think is one of them. Anyway, it's not, it's not hard to see the business practices. Those commercials were carried by Nickelodeon to 65 million US households. Mm. And people say, oh, this is just conspiracy theory until you show them the actual paths, actual methods. And then why did obesity spread globally so fast? It's because when the tobacco companies got into uh, trouble in the US, they turned to the State Department, the US State Department and said, well, help us grow elsewhere. And the State Department put pressure on governments all over the world to let the tobacco companies in. So when they got into processed foods, they already had two critical parts of that uh, business model. They had distribution. So they could make the products available. And they had uh, relationships with advertising outlets. So they could pile on the food advertising on top of the tobacco advertising and their advertising became very cheap. They could do a lot of it. So that's why it spread so quickly around the world. The obesity epidemic was around the world in 20 years, which is nothing. And just you know, being able to make the food so cheaply as well. You know, the whole concept is of fast food and how yeah, cheap it is. It's they were smart doing it, you know, that way too, because if you weren't able, if you couldn't afford it, you wouldn't have been able to have enough to become addicted. So mm -hmm. they had to have it priced low enough that you were able to consume it on a regular basis so that you'd want more and more and more. It's Pavlovian conditioning. So you have to have that repeat exposure. Mm -hmm. So that's why they went from 150 commercials per Saturday morning to 550. So the kids would get that repeat, 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 repeat mm -hmm. exposure. And then you turn off the television, but the neurons are now programmed to create that voice inside the head. You've trained those neurons to repeat, repeat, repeat inside the head of the child. 
you now have your advertising programmed into the head. It's so horrible. Mm -hmm. So horrible to think of doing that to a child. Yeah. So, you know, you've tried all of these things. I think that's really kind of fascinating too. You have 24 years of trying to gift people really and help people with because I feel the same way. Once you kind of feel free from that addiction, you just want to be able to help other people feel yes, as good as you yes, do. So you yes. try your, you know, little one page handout that you hand out to people. This is what you should eat. This is what you shouldn't eat. And, you know, people couldn't follow that. You did your, you know, your book, you did a food delivery program that didn't work. You did your textbook. Um, what finally, uh, I know that now you're finding some success. So talk to us a little bit about that, like what you're finding is actually helping people keep their recovery and get recovery now from food addiction. No, thank you. Thank you for asking about that. So what happened, we have to start with what happened to our brains because then you know what you need to repair. There are five areas of the brain that are affected by processed foods. The first one we've talked about, the reward pathways, the reward centers, uh, that's the limbic system, dopamine, serotonin, endocannabinoids, and opiates. They're all different kinds of pathways in that limbic system. So we know that uh, the business model calls for hyperactivating those neurons. So that is number one, which is to calm those very sensitive neurons. And you do that by depriving them of stimulate, food stimulation. And you replace it with nice things like uh, chair yoga and walking and being out in nature and doing crafts and arts. And so you have, you have a very specific job there, which is to calm those sensitized uh, reward neurons. Number two is the stress pathway, which is interwoven with the addicted neurons to calm the hyperactivated stress pathway. Because the addiction has, you know, just because they lie close together, the hyperactivated addicted uh, neurons have just kind of reached over and stimulated the stress pathway. Okay, so you've got to do a lot of calming activities to get the stress pathway. It's, it's like it's gotten into a tight cycle between the addicted neurons and the stress neurons, and you have to calm both of them. So you're depriving the addicted neurons of food stimulation, and you're depriving the stress, or you, and then you're, you're calming the stress neurons. Okay, so that's number two is calm the stress pathways. Number three is to, uh, once you've calmed those two pathways, there's now enough blood flow for the frontal lobe. This is attention span, learning, decision-making, memory, impulse control, some emotion processing, satiation. So you've got to, those neurons now can fire. So you've had two sections that were pulling the blood supply away from the frontal lobe. Frontal lobe is not, you know, it's a very new part of the brain. And so the brain doesn't prioritize the frontal lobe. 
Now that you have blood supply to the frontal lobe, you want to be very deliberately stimulating those neurons to come back online. So uh, reading and listening to, listening to your podcast, for example, would be cognitive restoration. So that's number three. Number four is dieting. Dieting has woken up uh, a very powerful part of the brain, which is the famine avoidance, food seeking, primitive. It's also the binge brain. So that part of the brain gets woken up because people are trying to deal with the deposits of fat tissue by not eating. And they don't know, oh, just take out the, the fattening foods, eat the real foods. And so you've got to put that part of the brain back to sleep uh, by eating enough food, enough highly nutritious food. And people have got to stop making that mistake of under eating or not eating at all. Um, so that's the area number four. And then five, which is the big secret, is mirror neurons. So for seven million years of the brain developing, humans lived if they could conform to a tribe. If they could do what the tribe is doing, they would find shelter, find food, be safe from predators and have their babies delivered. And if they didn't have really good conformance, mirror neuron, copying uh, neurons, and they tended to wander off, well, the hyenas would get them. They wouldn't live long enough to procreate. So over these 7 million years, we have these incredibly powerful mirror neurons. They copy, they mimic, they, uh, they and it's helpless. It's not something that's under the control of the frontal lobe. These mirrors on, mirror neurons are programmed. They are taught. They are created. They... They watch what other people are doing. They decide which people are in their tribe and they literally direct the activity of other neurons. It doesn't go anywhere near the frontal lobe. Frontal lobe can do things like decide what people they're gonna have in their environment, but they cannot stop that mechanism. If you're in a building and People are running past you to the door, you will run past, you will run to the door. If people are changing lanes in front of you, you will change lanes. It's helpless. It's not a controllable thing. So once you know that those are your five tasks, then you know, and you know that you have billions, you have a severe addiction, most of the serious complications, such as early age of onset, lots of different substances, lots of people triggering you in your environment, you know that you need immersion recovery. This is a new term. I just invented it this week, but it's why people used to be sent off to residential rehab because you could get immersion. But I've done a lot of interviewing in our Facebook group about residential rehab experiences and it doesn't work. Learning is triggered by the place in which it's learned. So if you go away to some other building and you learn there, your learning is activated by that building. It's a place trigger for learning. And then when you come home, 
your brain is activated by the home place trigger to binge because that's what it's learned to do there. That's, oh, the brain just says, oh, we know this place. This is where we binge. Okay, binge. It's not under our control. And yet the people providing these programs will blame the patients. Oh, you're not trying hard enough. Uh, no, you sold me a program that couldn't possibly have worked. You took $50,000 of my family's savings, or you left a mark on my insurance record, and you um, took me away from my job. I might have put my job at risk, uh, stressed out my family for five weeks, and you, you're, you're touting a program that could never possibly have worked. Same thing with bariatric surgery. So what did we do? What are we doing about this? We're providing this immersion online. And I, we've been doing it for two and a half years now. It works shockingly well, you know? And the first time we got on Zoom and we had a full week program called Reset Week, we, uh, I saw everybody by the end of the seven days was eating clean and doing the other 80% of things that they needed to do for themselves. Get enough rest, uh, do fun activities, exercise, um, you know, stimulate that frontal lobe with art and music. They were all doing it in, in this really incredibly short period of time. So that's what was going on. We were in an immersion model you are building resistance, control, wise, calm, patient neurons. You're packing information and direction being collected by mirror neurons into neurons at an incredibly rapid rate so that even by the end of one week, you have new control. It's very much like learning a language. So when I was in college, I learned French. I, I, my father moved us to Belgium and we learned French and I could speak French pretty fluently. So, and then I didn't use it. And uh, now I can't speak French anymore. I could probably bring it back. But here's the point is that if you needed to move to France, uh, say by the end of the week, and you were moving to a part of France that didn't speak English, you would have those earphones on, you'd be watching French movies, you'd be getting as much French vocabulary and sentence structure and phrases and conversation into your head so that when you got there, you could get on a bus and go to the grocery store and buy food and find an apartment or whatever you would need to do. You would immerse yourself in the language. It is exactly what we're doing. You want to have a new set of French neurons so that when you look at a car, those neurons will bring up voiture. Immersion recovery is exactly the same thing. You want to be able to look at a processed food and instead of thinking yummy, you want to think that food makes me sick. Mm -hmm. That is neuron programming. That is Pavlovian learning by neurons. And neurons are very good at learning. Helpless, helplessly learning. You've got this little tiny part of the brain that can actually evaluate, analyze, discern, assign weights, little tiny frontal lobe, 2% of the brain. And then the rest of the brain is just working on this 
automatic system. But once the frontal lobe says, oh, it's the people. I have to be around clean people, clean eating people, positive thinking people, calm people, people who are doing things with their intellectual capabilities. That's the role for the frontal lobe is to make that decision. Um, and then the rest of the brain will helplessly get better, you know, get well. Yeah, that's really amazing. And I listened to your talk about that neuron training and realized that I'd kind of been doing that. I've shared with my listeners, my mantra is, you know, I don't do that anymore. I just don't just over and over and over again, reprogramming, you know, when I still, if I see something that looks good, well, sorry, I just don't do that anymore. I just don't. And I can kind of move on now. So yeah, yeah that definitely connected with me because I, I had, you know, started doing that and it was really helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's very doable if you know exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So how can people, if they're interested in, you know, maybe signing up for one of these groups and finding out more information, what's the best way for them to kind of contact you? Or I will link all of your, I know you have lots of resources and website information, which I will link in this. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So the daily support system is, is four live events a day. Mm -hmm. It's the Addiction Reset Community. And we have Facebook and emails and other things to fill in between the, the live events so that you can immerse yourself. We give you the tools. And most importantly, we give you the staff. So we are training ARC managers. And we've got, oh, there are about 18 now who are um, modeling. So giving you really healthy people to copy. Mm -hmm. This is what's so hard about recovery. It's finding the people. It's finding people who are calm, who can teach this calmness, and um, who are eating clean and who are talking about the benefits. That's the hard part of recovery is finding those people. Mm -hmm. So we're really focusing, now that we see that the ARC works so well, we're focusing on people who can do that. So that website is foodaddictionreset.com. And if you want to train to be an ARC manager, you can go to Food Addiction Recovery Advocates. And you have to put the HTTP and the WWW in front of it, and I don't know why, but uh, Food Addiction Recovery Advocates. So that's, uh, we're providing jobs. I've always said, you know, with my business background, if I could give people jobs in this field, it will spread. Mm -hmm. So you can actually get a wonderful job making 40 to $60,000 a year, four or five hours a day. It is seven days a week because the addiction doesn't rest on the weekends. <laughs> but we do have <clears throat> the ARC manager training. <clears throat> so that's another place to go. And then four times a year, we put on Reset Week. And uh, these wonderful ARC managers just turn themselves inside out. And we have programming from 8 o'clock in the morning, East Coast, U.S., until 11 o'clock at night, East Coast. 
So you can do it from the West Coast where you and I are. Uh, and that is, you don't even have to think about it. All you have to do, we send you a food list and a video for how to make all your food for the week. We send you a series of videos on withdrawals. So you can manage withdrawal either during the week or uh, before the week. And, um, you know, that's all. You just sign up. We have group discounts. If you want to be put into a group, we can give you a good discount. And um, all you have to do is get on Zoom. That's all you have to do. And just watch and let your mirror neurons copy these very wonderful, kind, patient, compassionate, happy, clean eating people. And you just copy. You just sit there and watch. And how and do they sign up for that? that? How That's at resetweek.com. Resetweek.com. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, like you're doing, I'm going, I'm working on a website called processedfoodaddiction.com. And I'll go ahead and announce that because uh, we do, we know about these cognitive impairments. And so we don't put too much on one website people go into overwhelm very easily mm -hmm. because those, you know, attention, learning, memory, decision-making neurons are not really firing very well. And that's why people experience overwhelm so easily. Their mental faculties, which would normally just carry them straight through a decision-making or a study process, are not firing. It's not mm -hmm. their fault. So it's one thing that we're very aware of. Where are the trauma of trying and trying and being blamed, mm -hmm. the trauma of being in a body that's reject rejected by the culture, the trauma of being raised by food addicted parents. And we're very, very respectful. And so, we, you know, our, our things are structured very carefully to be comfortable to people whose brains have been attacked in this particular way. Anyway, it's very cool. So will your food, processfoodaddiction.com be kind of um, a clearinghouse? Yeah. Yeah, just a one-stop for podcasts on there. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. for, and you know, I was sharing with Joan before we started recording that that's, you know, the purpose of my podcast is trying to have that spot because it is overwhelming and there is so much information out there we we were talking about that's just wrong and incorrect and mm -hmm. you know so i think that's a great idea to have this you know kind of a resource of where people can find um more information out and yeah i don't want people to, to think it. that they have to ruin their finances and stress out their families to go to residential treatment yeah, I, I want them to stop thinking that today. <laughs> no, like yeah. don't, don't, because I think the addiction uses that as a rationale for not doing anything. Mm -hmm. I don't have dollars and I can't leave for five weeks. Therefore, I'm stuck. And the addiction says, yes, you're stuck with me, <laughs> the addiction. <laughs> no, it's not true. You can go to our, everything is very affordably priced. You can go to one of our websites and you can start getting the, you know, because I wrote the textbook, because I have such a deep appreciation for the mechanics of how those addic those neurons got addicted and stressed, um, we we can help people for whom nothing has worked. Mm -hmm. 
And we got the right model. We've got the right approaches. We got now we have this incredible team of all these people. We've got another 20 people behind them who will be out there any day. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, I can't believe we're already out of time. This has been so helpful. Um, I just always like to ask, you know, if there's anything else maybe that you wanted to share with our listeners that we didn't get to talk about. I'd love to have you on the podcast again. I feel like we could, there's so much more to talk about, but is there anything else today that you wanted to, um, you know, tell the listeners or share? Yeah, just say one more sentence, which is uh, children are very likely to be addicted and they're getting diagnoses that lead to making the addiction worse like learning disabled or ADHD, and then the medications actually make the addiction worse, uh, oppositional behavior, all these labels are coming up. No, they're, they're having really, really tragic reactions to processed foods. So Reset Week is a good time to get support for getting your children off of processed mm -hmm. foods. And, uh, but even, we only do reset week like four times a year. Uh, if we're not doing a reset week soon, come into the ARC. Go to foodaddictionreset.com and come into the ARC. And we will support you for getting your oxygen mask on first and getting clear yourself. And then how to work with children. Addicted children is something brand new on the earth. There's never been cheap enough substances to make it worthwhile to addict children. Uh, but the tobacco companies figured that one out. And now we have millions of addicted children. And and the parents don't have to fight with the children. I just, that's one more thing. That was a long sentence. <laughs> well, I'm glad you really touched on that because, you know, my listeners know I have a five and six year old and it's something I'm very sensitive about. And, you know, wondering since I'm a addicted mind if they're going to be more apt to it and just the struggle there is with schools and just trying to you know control what sugar they are getting outside of the home so I think that's something a lot of parents can probably relate to and it's probably hard for when you are getting off sugar if your family's addicted as you're talking about those neurons you're seeing everyone else in your family exactly. and this is your extended family as well yeah still making these bad decisions so um yeah that, well, that, that gets tricky that we that's a really good thing about reset week is that you're getting this positive calming messaging and everybody in the household whether they're cooperating or not is getting that messaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're gonna encourage people to sit in a part of the house where everybody in the house can hear it. Yeah. This is how people got addicted. The television was on, mm -hmm. they could have been in the next room, but their brain was soaking it up and getting addicted from the messaging, from the marketing. So you, when you control the cueing, when you understand the role of cueing, you don't, you can calm household members without getting their cooperation, without even mentioning to the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that and for taking your time to talk to us today. Oh, I'm just delighted. Thank you. I will link all these, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about so that people can access them along with your website. I know you have a lot of information there as well. So yeah. thank you. Thank so you. Much. All right.
Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.